Let's go. Welcome to the Poptimist Podcast. Today, our guest is bass player David Abdo. Hello, David. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. Can you plug your social media and all that good stuff, how people can find you? I'm on Instagram. Uh, Abdo Sounds is the uh, is the heading. Um, I don't do a whole lot on Twitter. I'm pretty lame as far as that goes. And, of course, I'm on Facebook. And Twitter. I think Twitter's becoming the way of the past. Yeah, it seems that. Well, Facebook. Yeah, Facebook. Well. Facebook, too. Instagram is where it's at. Everybody's really positive on Instagram, too. Very much. Yeah. And uh, I, I do have a website, uh, davidabdomusic, all one word, dot com. Perfect. Um, so... I kind of been thinking a little bit lately for myself, how I go through phases and cycles with listening mm. to music. Do you find yourself going through something similar where you'll come back to an artist or something that you'll continually go back to? And, and who is it? Uh, yeah, it happens a lot. Usually it's, it's something nostalgic. It's usually accidental or maybe a, a memory will, will trigger, you know, uh, you know, a certain song, certain band, certain CD. Um, I'm trying to think of some examples. I mean, I was actually it was, it was pretty recently. Uh, someone had nominated me for that. Uh, you know, the thing on Facebook where you do the ten albums mm-hmm. a day, and it it forced me to figure out. You know, well, what would be the ten most influential albums or most significant ones in my life? And and so I had to go back and. Like one of the first ones that popped up popped up was uh, was Living Color, the the band from way back. And yeah, they were a '90s band, right? Yeah, yeah. What were some of their hits? Well, Cult of Personality. Okay, was the yes. Biggest one. Yeah, okay. But, you know, I, I would when I was just starting to play. Well, Rush was another one, and uh, those two bands. You know, I when I was first starting to play bass, were uh, my challenges. Uh, you know, sitting at the edge of my bed trying to work out the riffs and all that. Like, like my sister, I, I drove her nuts, uh, trying to learn like cult of personality, uh, Tom Sawyer. Mm-hmm. And it was just stuff like that. That was sort of triggering this old stuff. Um, and then of course, uh, um, I had seen, uh, this video of Victor Bailey, the bass player who he sadly, he, I think he, I can't remember what he died, but he was sick. Um, and he had done this really cool transcription of Countdown by John Coltrane, the introduction. And it just, it was amazing. And so I went back to the Giant Steps album and started listening back to that. So it just, it's usually things, whether, you know, it, it's, a, it's something uh, from my past. You know, something sentimental usually triggers yeah. these songs. Yeah, it's been like that for me lately, too. Uh, Arctic Monkeys are one of my all-time favorite mm-hmm. bands, and they have a new album coming out. So I've been kind of going back and listening to all of their stuff because uh, when I was in high school, the, their first album had come out. Mm-hmm. And just going through and seeing, looking back at all of their records, because this is going to be their sixth record, so that means they have five records now. Which you, Once you get to that point in your career, it's like, you're entering the, they're entering the mature, mature phase of their career now where it's like, okay, this is what we know what we're doing. Um, and I just started listening to everything and looking back on it all and just seeing my progression as a, as a human being, remembering being 22 and having my car break down constantly and, and shit like that. And it just changes through 
through time. One of the many great things about music, yeah, how it connects with your, you know, your past. I mean, how many songs, you know, have you heard on the radio and it triggers a memory? Yeah, it's powerful. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a time capsule, and the more experience that I've gained through music, and the more that I do this podcast, I, it's like you're trying to explain the unexplainable. You know, I, every time I talk to another musician, it's always like, well, I can't really explain it. You just you just feel it. And I think in this career, you go through many phases and many cycles, whether it be with your playing, with listening, anything like that. And kind of one thing that I was curious about with you is, is what your career looks like today. And I kind of want to reverse engineer it to see everything that you've learned and how it's played into what you're currently doing. Hmm. Well, I, you know, I, I'm at a very interesting place in my life because um, at the time of this podcast, I've only been in Nashville for about a year and a half and it was coming from a time where I had a a regular job you know I was a middle school music teacher for many years and at the same time I was playing a lot in the area where I was from and uh, you know I I needed to make a change and I wanted music to be a, a bigger part of my life uh, you know, teaching uh, teaching music obviously is is, is huge, um, but as far as delving deeper and you know answering all of the what ifs, as far as you know how far can I go with this thing, um, some might even call it a midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'd come down here to a uh, for a summer NAMM show because I, I write for Premier Guitar Magazine. I do bass gear reviews for them. And had an opportunity to come down here, hang out with the guys, and uh, also, you know, geek out at NAM. Yeah. But at the same time, outside of the convention, I was able to, uh, you know, just kind of see what Nashville had to offer, at least get a little taste. And after a few conversations, managed to come down here. Um, but, you know, it's like, getting back to your question, you know, there's, I think it's just, you could probably parallel life to it, you know, just the experiences that you have, the successes and the failures that you have in music, um, the people that inspire you help kind of shape your direction. And, um, you know, uh, the biggest thing is probably just being honest with yourself, you know, kind of looking back and seeing what you've done right, what you've done wrong, especially, and, and kind of going from there, you know, and, and making yourself not only a better musician, just, a better human being. Was there a, a trigger event or something like that when you were back home, still teaching, working a job where it was just like, okay, I have to do this now. Or was it something that was just gradual in the background always? Not to get too dark. Uh, it probably, what, what triggered it was probably the death of my father. Um, I'd been, you know, I'd been, a, I'd been helping him, out a lot with my as well as my mother, um, you know he 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 was he was pretty sick for a long time, and when he passed, um, I had a moment where it was just sort of questioning. Well, it was questioning everything. You know, like what am I, you know, what am I doing? And as ugly as it sounds, you know, he he his passing was not was not a pretty one, and not that death is pretty, but. Um, <laughs> You know, I said, you know, if I'm going to go out this way, um, I, I want to make the most of it. I want to make sure that I've done everything that I've wanted to do. And there was a really cool, uh, 
You know how Kevin Smith does those Q&A things? Oh, dude, I fucking love okay. Kevin Smith. Uh, I'll never forget it. It was probably two months after Dad passed away. I was... I got home from a gig. It was really late. And uh, just turned on the TV and, you know, yeah, I'm also a fan of Kevin Smith. Yeah. And it was it was the most bizarre timing because uh, it, it got into the meat of his Q&A sessions and this guy had asked, you know, what what kept you going? And he, you know, went on this long exposition. On, as he does. As he does. Yeah. But then he got into a moment where he was talking about his dad passing. And um, his words were uh, that his dad went out screaming. And I could really relate to that because in certain ways, uh, you know, my dad went out the same. And I just, I just sat there floored. And Kevin Smith had said, if I'm going to go out screaming, I'm going to do whatever I, you know, I'm going to write that script. I'm going to direct that movie. I'm going to do all the things that I've wanted to do. I want to do this podcast, you know, everything that he mm -hmm. does. And it was like, yes, absolutely. Reality check. It just, it was, it was a mortality check. Mortality check. Yeah. That's, and, that's a perfect uh, way to describe it. Yeah. It, it really, um, I mean, aside from being a very emotional moment, it, it sort of set everything on this path yeah. to where we are. So it was kind of an avalanche event where everything in your life that followed shifted and changed. Yeah, man. And on a, and on a much smaller level, you know, I just, I kind of done everything that I, I wanted to do, needed to do in my hometown. I was looking for a challenge, wanted something bigger. And, um, obviously Nashville has plenty to offer, you know, has a much higher ceiling of success. Yeah. Like, like so many of us. I mean, the story is nothing new. No. But, um, this just seemed to be the right place and it definitely felt like the right time. And you were teaching at the time when you were still back home? Yeah, man. Uh, middle school. Okay. Middle school music. So you were like a band teacher, a band director? It was general music. I had a band degree, like, like an instrumental music degree, mm -hmm. but... This job that I found uh, was general music. You know, I did little things like master classes and helped out with the jazz band and stuff. And I did a year of band at a Catholic school my very first year after graduation. How was that? And, um, it was it was fine. Uh, I made about eighteen thousand dollars for a year of you know a lot of stress. Uh, just a, well, there was a lot of bullcrap to it. But, yeah. Um, I had to get out, man. Not to mention I couldn't live, you know, who, you know, who can live on 18,000 a year? No. So I found this job that offered a lot more money and, um, you know, took that and spent, you know, a long time over there just doing general music and stuff. So it was great because I could play as well. Mm hmm. Was, uh, teaching something that's always important to you? Did you have a mentor or some like someone like that who kind of pushed you in that direction or set you on that path? Aside from growing up with <clears throat> teachers of my family, mom was a teacher. Oh, okay. Um, my sister became a teacher and also a principal. So education was a big part of my upbringing. Um, and then, of course, yeah, there, there were teachers that were inspiring throughout school. I, I think everybody has a teacher that inspired them or did the opposite. 
But um, the power of an educator can be so significant to one's life. And I didn't necessarily want to get, get into education, but as the years progressed and as I, you know, worked with kids and helped them not only with music, but just with life stuff, um, there were some profound moments and it, it meant a lot. It seemed to mean a lot to them and it certainly meant a lot to me. So what were one of those profound moments? There was a project that we would do in general music class where the kids, it was, when I first got to this school, the general music curriculum was, was pretty weak and it didn't have a lot as far as assignments and content to grade. So I came up on the spot with a very simple assignment. You had to write one page on your favorite artist or band and why they meant something to you. While it sounds simple, it can open up a lot of deeper things. And the bigger challenge in it was that I required the students to present it in front of the class. They had to read it, you know, and in middle school, at such a very vulnerable and weird age, that was a new thing and, and challenging and scary, all that stuff, because they didn't, you know, these kids didn't have a lot as far as um, public speaking, performing, mm -hmm. and, and definitely sharing something that could be very personal. Personal. So there was this girl, I think this was, a, was an eighth grade class. There was a really quiet girl in there, and everyone's going, you know, they're coming up, sharing, you know, clap, whatever. This girl comes up, not the most popular kid, pretty shy. She comes up and she says, my favorite artist is Miley Cyrus. And, you know, there were a few snickers, you know, typical yeah. you know, middle school behavior. And um, she goes, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I could actually show you. I still have the, the uh, report. But she said, my favorite artist is Miley Cyrus because she helped convince me not to kill myself. And she goes on to talk about how, you know, her life at home was really bad. Um, she felt ugly. She didn't feel accepted at school. Just getting into a lot of stuff. And, and she got into a little bit of detail. And it was, the whole room went silent as soon as she said this. And she started talking about these certain songs of Hannah Montana and Miley Cyrus and how they inspired her, how they convinced her not to kill herself and how uh, it inspired her to want to help somebody else as well. And when that was over, I mean, you just saw the emotion in the room and it really tapped into, uh, I don't know, it just made what was once a very simple assignment something that not only help kids kind of tap into their emotions, but also see a side of their fellow classmates. It kind of brought the room together. Sure. And it broke those social stigmas or those cliquish things. For and it was about the music. And it was how, yeah, overall how this music, you know, helped these kids. And, you know, let's face it, artists that might get mocked. Another example, uh, a kid stood up who was, who was kind of a class clown. And talked about how his favorite artist was Nickelback. And we know how much garbage Nickelback gets. But this kid tells a story about how he, his father left him on his birthday. And 
he was totally you could just you could just see the dejection and the sadness yeah um the tears welling up and you know the father left him on his birthday and his mom took him out for ice cream and on their way home this nickelback song came on and the mom pointed at the radio and said this is our song and it brought him closer to his mother the song made him feel better um and it helped him cope with something horrible I mean, how bad, you know, it's bad enough his dad left him, but on his birthday. Yeah. And he also said that, you know, at the time his dad said that he didn't love him. Yeah. So it just, it, it was moments like that that exposed, you know, th- this really, th- well, it exposed this vulnerability. And it, it really made a, I don't know, it made an impact. Did you ex- expect that to happen? No. When you, no. no so way. you assigned this, he thought they were just going to be like, my favorite artist is Miley Cyrus because I like to dance and I like to sing. And then because she's they started pretty, getting, yeah, they started getting deep. It was and they started talk. getting real, yeah. And these are, you know, 12 and 13 year olds who most people would just not necessarily scoff at them, but wouldn't respect their feelings necessarily. You know, we look at kids and, and see them as, you know, you know, they're, they're still growing and they're still developing, which is true. But they're also starting to deal with some real life stuff. I mean, things that even people in their, you know, forties probably haven't dealt with. Yeah. So it, it was heavy. It was, it was a really cool thing. And it, it, if it made an impact on them or if it helped them appreciate music and also appreciate their fellow classmates more than I feel it was a success. It humanized everybody. Yeah. Got everybody on the same level for a minute. Took it stripped down the bull crap. Yeah. yeah. Of school. And yeah. And it was great. Yeah, that sounds amazing. So on a, another note, as far as your playing goes, I've seen your playing frequently every Tuesday night at the local with our uh, mutual friend, Kara Lipman. Yep. You're, you are the bass player for Caribbean Blue. Yes. Um, how did you meet Kara? The jam. Uh, got to town and just started talking to everybody or looking up, you know, where are the jams, what's going on. It's... It's really no different than what everybody else did when they came yeah, to town. Yeah, the Nashville story. And uh, Tuesday night, uh, at the time, uh, oh, I was doing the songwriters jam at the Musicians Union. Still, I'm still doing that. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, Geely Lee Warden. Yeah. Uh, great bass player, great bass player, great, great guitar, drummer, just great, great guitarist, great going, keyboard, great yeah. and, and a really cool guy. Yeah, um, he he played guitar and brought a lot of his songs to the songwriters jam at the union, um, which is a great thing to check out. By the way, it's once a month. You don't have to be a member. It's totally cool. Um, but he was there, and he also mentioned that, you know, he was playing down, at the time, the country. The country. It's always going to be the country it's in my heart. It's always the country, yeah. Uh, so I came in and uh, met Kara, was, was cool, and, you know, it's always funny how, you know, when she meets new people, she's like, are you a pro? Yeah. Well, I want to be, you know, yeah. She's, sure. uh, she's sizing you up. I think if you flinch, that's when she knows that y- you are a pro or you want to be a pro. Yeah, you know, it, I think it's yeah, maybe she has a way of reading people. And as weird as the question was, I was sort of like, well, d- d- yeah, sure, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and um, got up and jammed with some guys, and, and, and it was a lot of fun. They, they let me, you know, take a solo and stuff. And um, 
got done and, and she was, she seemed impressed. She's like, you know, usually I don't come in for bass solos, but, um, you know, I had to walk back in the room and see who was playing. Mm -hmm. So it seemed like a good experience. Came back the next week and, and just, you know, jammed and talked with everyone. Um, later that month, I can't remember what month it was, but I got a, I think I got a private message from her saying, hey, uh, G. Lee is going out with Andy T and his band. Mm -hmm. And that was going to take up a lot of time. So we need a bass player, and we want to try out a couple guys, and uh, we'd like to have you as one of those possibilities. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And that was it. Learned some of her originals, you know, the stuff you hear all the time. Yep. And uh, got to know Val and Maddie. And, Uncle Val, cousin Matt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Dirty Dan. Uh, yeah, Dirty Dan. <laughs> Uh, no, I love Dan. He's super cool. Um, got to know the guys and we just, we hit it off really well. Yeah. So I, not only musically, but personally, um, we had a very, real positive experience. So it was a lot of fun. And then, and then, you know, the rest is history. Uh, yeah. Offered me the, the Tuesday slot and it's really, um, it's opened up a lot of, it, it was a, it was probably the first real opportunity I had in town because, it allowed me to not only meet a lot of people, but they were able to see me play. And I think that that's one of the biggest challenges, you know, being a new person in Nashville is just getting the opportunity to get on stage. Oh, yeah. You know, how many times, you know, have we gone out and you listen to people talk? I mean, God, there's just so much, you know, talk. You know, I've done this and this and this and I'm working on this and, and they that. list off the resume to you. They, Yeah, the, the, there's just a lot of resume listing. But in the end, uh, it, it doesn't seem to matter. You got to get up on stage. You got to, you have to demonstrate what you can do playing wise. Yeah. And yes, it's a jam session. And, and some people just kind of take that as fun time. But for new people, it's, it's make or break in a lot of those situations. Yeah. Yeah, I remember the first time that I played, I, the first time I played in Nashville was at the country, at the Tuesday Night Jam. Uh -huh. I was already here for about six or nine months or something like that. Now, that's when I was still working my shitty job that I hated, all of that. How long have you been here? I've been here close to three years. It'll be three okay. years this August. So that was the first time I really got to play because I didn't even know where to look when I first got here. It mm -hmm. was just like people were playing and it's just like, well, how do you play? What do you do? And then I started to hear about the blues jams. Um, my friend Dale Hunter introduced me to Kara and told me to, you know Dale, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So me and Dale were working together and he was the one who said, you got to go, you got to go out to play if you want to play. And I was terrified that first night because Kara, I, I went up, introduced myself and she's like, are you a pro? And I was like, uh, 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 I, I've never been in a situation like that before, you know? And all the players were really hot. When I first got to Nashville, I was so freaking intimidated because everybody was just a, a heavy hitter. Like they were, you're playing, it's Nashville hot. If you're playing out a lot, if you're playing at jams, you're doing gigs, it starts to sound lubricated for lack of a better word, where you're just oiled up and you're ready to go. And that that is a muscle that you have to work and you have to gain here mm -hmm. but i was terrified i mean when i first started playing i could barely even i had played 12 bar blues and everything like that but i had eaten shit multiple times on slow blues songs 
That's that's because I never really played one of those live before and someone just counted it off and I was like, oh, fuck, I've never done this before. And that's what drives you or at least me. It drives me to get better when I eat shit like that, mm-hmm. especially if it's in front of a lot of people. So I've skinned my knees and I'm willing to go down in the dirt and get ugly in order to get better. And that's that's a huge thing. And, and it does, you know, this is, of course, presuming a lot, but it seems like a lot of players... Maybe they cover that up, but we all know our secrets. We've all had those horrible experiences. Yeah. And and those experiences that made us better players, better teachers, better people. Yeah. So, yeah, man. there's it, we're, we're all full of scars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's something that I feel really grateful for as part of the journey because the deeper I get into it, the more music starts to shine a light on parts of me that I don't necessarily want to look at all the time mm-hmm. or even acknowledge that are, that are there. But I think everybody has the capacity to be both good and bad. And uh, Jordan Peterson, do you know Jordan Peterson at all? No. Okay, so Jordan Peterson is a college professor. Um, but one of the things that he's kind of talked about a little bit um, is you ha- in order to be good, you have to know what it's like to be bad. So as we all have it in us to, to be selfish or to be petty or to be angry. And it's in those moments where you start to, I like more and more, I'm starting to recognize that in myself and just trying to purge it out of me, mm. purge the ugliness out of me. Cause we all have that capacity. It's harder to attract people with positivity than negativity. I think it's something that we're experiencing in American culture right now, big time. There's a level of divisiveness amongst people that have different backgrounds in you or a different race than you have different political beliefs in you different gender all of that and I think everybody has a little bit of that in them and if you don't have it unchecked then it can start to really wreak havoc on your mind well and you see that happening I I, I was having this it's it's funny you mention this because I was having a similar conversation with or we were talking about this Val uh, Lupescu and I were we're discussing this a little bit and you know, we're, we're in a very unique time in, in our, I, and this is the, the optimist coming out. Um, you know, you always hear about people criticizing millennials or criticizing many things about humanity. It's the end of the world type of crap. And I think we're in a very unique time as far as, you know, human development, we're going through a transitional process and, a lot of it has to do with with social networking, the way that we you know use technology anymore, and at the same time, you know, it's being used for good and used for ill purposes. Yeah, and there was a, I think it was a study through Johns Hopkins where they had done a, they they were studying the brain and how. Um, a result of all of this negativity and all of these sort of paranoid ideas and, and we were becoming a fear-based society um, as a result of what we're seeing on Facebook, what we're seeing on TV, what we're, you know, various stimuli. We're not made for it yet. Well, we're, our brains are, are, are adjusting and the, the side of our brains, the part of our brains that uh, process fear and deal with fear uh, were becoming stimulated so much that they were actually, and I don't think they're physically growing, but they, it was it was using up more of the brain versus the side that was more logical 
and and more thought based. I, I'm 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 not a neuroscientist. I'm not. Yeah, a no, it, it makes know. sense. Yeah, but because we were taking in so much fear based information, that side was sort of taking over um, the lot more logical sides of our brain. So we were becoming. Uh, you know, these people that are more paranoid or more, you know, wary of our surroundings, of what's being said to us, what's what we're taking in. And my hope is that this is just a part of the process. And, and we're, you know, this is by no means the end of the world or the end of, you know, humanity. But I think the world just, has always been ending since day one. <laughs> but we're just trying, yeah, we're just trying to deal with we're just trying to deal with these, these new ways of acquiring information. And we're seeing things, particularly with, you know, these recent generations that they're not only, they're not just getting information, but they're learning how to process the information better and find truth. Um, you know, I'm not going to get political on this or anything, but you know, you look at those, you know, the situations, the situation down in Florida, you know, where the, the high school kids were rallying against, you know, gun violence and, you know, they were being criticized a lot for their actions, but these were mobile, they, these were active kids that were passionate, that were delving into things. I, I think many of them had uh, established a stance. Um, and actually, a lot of them established, a stan- established stances on both sides. Yeah. But they were becoming more informed based on, you know, their own processing of the information. And yeah, who knows? I'm sure there were plenty of, you know, margins of error in that but i i love seeing these these newer generations you know handling information certainly better than my generation the ones before and i i think we're in a really exciting time man so yeah yeah and it's funny you kind of mentioned that because i'm 26 so i my childhood was still spent without the internet it wasn't until my later childhood that that really came in, you know, the early teen years. Mm-hmm. I think my family first got a computer when I was eight or nine. So when I was a little kid, you know, we would play outside and we'd go out and, and do stuff. And just seeing the kids today and kind of the way that they're like, there are kids today that, that had their parents had an iPhone when they were a small child and they were taking pictures of them. Mm-hmm. So it's just a different world that we're living in. I think with all of this technology, it's like a, you, it's almost like a lens and where you go, within the internet can be a lens for how you see the world. Mm-hmm. And then I think on the other end of that, not only is it a lens, but you have to decide kind of like what you were saying, what the actual truth is. And I think one thing that we're kind of doing a disservice on is really critical thinking. I feel like those skills aren't taught much anymore to be able to see both sides and how they're both correct in a lot of ways and how they're wrong. Where, where does it fail? And I think for a long time, things have been running unchecked in our society. And now with the power of the internet for good or for bad, society is trying to keep itself in check and it's not always a a good thing, Mm -hmm. but I think with technology where we need to end up going is starting to humanize each other again and starting to see each other as, as fellow human beings that we're sharing this existence with because we're doing each other a disservice right now by being so cruel and so mean on the internet. It's just, and, and you know what? I think people who are like that, who really 
you know, are just angry about everything, there's something wrong with their oh, life. Oh, certainly. Yeah, there's oh. something else that's bothering them that they, they don't know how to deal with, and this is an outlet for them to to finally have some kind of justice or feel like they have power in the world. Cause the digital bully. Yes. Yeah, it's and, – and that is um, – you know, we've all well. I had a, I had a, my first experience trolling was, uh, <laughs> or not trolling, but being trolled rather. Yeah. Uh, was at Premier Guitar. I did a, a video review for uh, this Paul Reed Smith bass, and I did horrible. It was awful. It was awkward. It was clunky. I, I just, I looked like a total boob in front of the camera. Aw. Uh-huh. And. Or at least I felt that way, you know, and, and, and what, looking back at it, it was, yeah, I mean, I was super awkward. Anyway, you know, they, they posted it as they do with all of their content. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was looking down at some of the comments and stuff and it was, it, it, there was some nice things and then there were some kind of, well, you know, oh, that, man, he's kind of boring or, oh, he could have come up with some better riffs or whatever. And somebody had put on there R.I.P. David Abdo. He killed himself today. Damn. Yeah. And, you know, everything else fine. People could say what they want. But at that moment, you know, if, if my mom happened to see that, um, I, I was furious. Yeah. And so uh, called the editors, let them know what was up there, and they, they removed it immediately. But, uh, but you know, it's, it's that kind of ugliness. Yeah. You know, that... And so, but hey... It that's been happening forever, you know. Yeah. If it's not on our our phones, if it's not on the internet, it's you know, you know, in the hallways at school. So. Yeah, and I think uh, kids are much more susceptible to something like that because it's it's almost like kids don't fully know how to how to like function in society yet, right? Um, and I think that's what kind of the, one of the dangers of it is. It's, it's almost like we should teach a class on, on etiquette for the internet. Well, there's a lot. I mean, etiquette in general. I mean, it's just growing. I, I think we need more role models, more positive figures in education. I mean, what you were talking about as far as critical thinking just a little bit ago is a whole other, you know, that's just opening a whole other box because, uh-huh. yeah, the way that things are, you know, the the, the limitations that are being established in education uh, are the most damaging, um, in my opinion, to uh, to society. Because we're just, you know, we're, we're losing sight, we're losing focus on what content to provide. I think there are people up above that are, you know, limiting what we're learning to be more, you know, productive, you know, human to beings. To be drones. And, you know, even to go so far as, as to what uh, kids are, you know, ingesting, like, like, like the food they eat. Is such garbage. I mean, we're, we're, you know, their own, you know, diet. I, I'll never forget, you know, walking down the hallway in the morning every day and seeing kids with giant, uh, you know, giant cups from Starbucks, you know, like venti, mm-hmm. uh, lattes with, you know, sprinkles and whipped cream and all this stuff. I, you know, 12 year old kids consuming that much caffeine, big bags of Cheetos. And then when they go to lunch, They've got this crap pizza. They've got crap food, you know, but they'll put out a little bit of broccoli and maybe a basket of apples so they can make healthy choices. I'm rambling on that, but you know, that, you know, not just the food, but the content that they're learning in the classroom has become so limited and it's been a hindrance to teachers as well. So hopefully, 
you know, we can, we can make some changes there. What do you think the focus should be on? If you, uh, 10,000 foot view, if, if you had the power to, to have a say in what people would learn about in school, what would you say they should focus on? Well, like you said, critical thinking, um, is a big thing, you know, learning about philosophy, learning about, and again, this is something that Val and I just talked about. Yeah. Which is, which I talked about, I talked about about this shit every Tuesday when I see him. But yeah, you know, and I totally agree with them, you know, learning about philosophy, learning about ways of thinking and thought, because I, you know, it's not just learning about, you know, history, math, it, it's, it's the manner in how to think or, or ways in which to think, you know, it's being able to, to take in stimuli, digest it, process it, you know, train the brain to function better uh, so that when it comes to learning math, when it comes to learning uh, the science and all of these things, that they'll be able to, you know, delve into those things. Um, you know, I, I think music is an essential part of learning. You know, I'm biased, of course, but I think the way that it, it stimulates us, allows us to express ourselves, it... Um, it does so much as far as, you know, you know, interpersonal communications that, you know, the, the folks thousands of years ago had it right, you know, between, you know, the trivium and quadrivium and all that, you know, it just, the, those core things allowed them to be, you know, better thinkers and, and, and better learners. And, uh, I, I think just between politics and, insecurities and even some ignorance in education. It's really one of the reasons why I got out too, man, because there's just a ton of bull crap. <laughs> it's, yeah. I, I had to get out, man. It was just, you know, and that's, again, we could, we could spend an, another hour talking about that, but, but conversely, you know, I do have hope for the future. I'm very excited to see what these upcoming generations do with technology, with information, with music, with, with, art with science with everything um and and we'll look back decades from now and and just see this as a very very transitional period i think so too so on a closing note do you have any good stories of a gig that you played where you just totally dude we barely talked about music <laughs> i know <laughs> i'm I sorry know. no no that's well the thing the thing about the podcast is that i want it to be beyond just just talking about music because yeah. I think it's so important to talk about the mindset that you have to, to take when you do music mm. and you do have to develop these critical thinking skills. Mm. Um, about a gig? About, that... Yeah, about a gig where you maybe uh, didn't show up prepared or you really ate shit, embarrassed yourself. <laughs> anything, would, anything funny? That would take another hour. Um, oh, oh God, I have a ton of horrible gigs stories. Um, a funny one was I was playing a big band gig. It was uh, it was uh, the Bix Jazz Festival in Davenport. I have Bix Beiderbecke was born in Davenport, and every year they have a a jazz festival celebrating his music, his creativity, all things Bix and music of that era. And we were going to, or I was I was going to a gig. I can't remember what it was, but um, I was playing with a band that was focused on the music of Gene Goldkett, who Bix had worked with, and I didn't realize it. I was I was running late. I was in such a hurry that I had ripped 
I'd ripped the crotch of my pants. Oh, and it wasn't no. just the crotch, but it, it went like all the way back. My, my butt was exposed. Um, and <laughs> I was wearing, I was wearing some tighter pants and I just said, you know what, man, I'm, I'm not going to wear underwear. You know, I just, I'm just going to put the, I got to get these things out. We got to go. So, um, so yeah, my butt was hanging out and I uh, got to the gig and just things felt, and this sounds goofy, but yeah, it just, things felt a little drafty down there. Yeah, I'm and, sure. Uh, reached down. I was like, oh my God. So I didn't know how to fix it. Uh, all I had was, uh, a roll of duct tape in the car. So I took a, some duct tape <laughs> and I just started making these long strips and applying it to the open area because I couldn't close it off very well. So <clears throat> was it against your skin and sticking to you? It was against the skin. Oh. It was against everything. And uh, yeah, I just had to reach in there and apply all this tape and stuff and got to the gig. And of course, you know, everyone's looking and they're like, you know, hey man, what the... What's going on down there? What's all that? But I was like, you got a whole, you know, all that. Well, as I was sweating and it was warm, because oh, this, no. this jazz fest took place in July. So, you know, it gets hot in the Midwest and I was sweating and, you know, the, the duct tape started to loosen up a little bit and it was just such oh. a hassle. So, you know, fortunately I was a bass player being in the back to where, you Were know. Were you playing upright? Yeah. And uh, limited exposure was was certainly were you making sure to like stand behind the behind the base that way no one can see you well at that point you know it was just you you just go for it at that you just put your name on it this is this This is is who i am yep yes my buddy well never mind yeah yeah it was bad (laughs) but um as far as performance goes uh the one of the worst gigs I ever had, worst performances I ever had, was my uh, college uh, recital. It was it was awful, and a lot of it was well, all of it. It was my fault. It just I I was in a weird headspace back then, and I had a lot of growing up to do, and was not prepared. And I got on stage, family, friends, um, and, and you know the the. The music, you know, the college music world is is super critical, <laughs> and I I embarrassed myself. Um, I had taken on a new instrument when I got to college because I was playing trumpet for many years, mm-hmm. and when I got to college, um, they they thought that you know bass would be a a better path to take, and they were right. I love you know I love playing bass, love being a bass player, but I had a lot of catch up to do, and started playing a lot of upright and. Um, you know, work, you know, playing in the orchestras and, and learning my arco technique as well as possible. But I just didn't, I don't know. I just, I did not handle things very well and I didn't prepare and it just, it was horrible. I, I was making mistakes left and right. My bowing technique was awful. Um, I, it, it was, it was humiliating and I got done and had a really ugly conversation with my, my teacher at that time. And uh, in short, he just said, you know, I'm going to let you pass. And you're just, you know, you're just going to have to figure out, figure it out in life. You know? Damn. And uh, yeah. Dude, How old was, were you? 
22, 23. So were you just about to graduate? It was, cl- yeah, I was close. I was, um, cause I, I didn't go to school initially as a, as a music, uh, as a music major. And, uh, but I realized how much it meant to my life and how much I wanted to have a career in music. So I transitioned from marketing to music <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't regret it, but that moment has always, always sat ugly. And it's helped me become a better player. It's helped, it's helped me help other players because I realize what it's like to completely fall on your face. Um, and that's one that you know I wish I could, I wish I could have back. But it's it's made me the person I am, and it's made me the player that I am today. That's a perfect note to end on, David. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. <laughs>